If you like our podcast, there is a strong chance that you've also heard NPR's It's Been a Minute. It's a show that has delivered endless delight and a space to bring all those messy feelings of being alive right now. Your social media angst, your political terrors, your family dramas, your rants, your raves, all guided by founding host Sam Sanders. I went to the Santa Monica Promenade to find the Friends pop-up. Yes, a pop-up for the 90s sitcom Friends. And when I tell you the energy, the cheers, the pandemonium, when these queens marched out. You wrote in the book that Obama was actually really, really good at long sentences. Yeah. What kind of things about the way he talks and writes became even clearer and more evident to you once you were writing for him? I got the blackest uh, snack item for you. What? My mom growing up, I don't know where the hell she found it. Microwavable pork rinds. Okay. And now... The podcast has a new host. A few weeks ago, writer and critic Brittany Luce succeeded Sam Sanders. Before she became a radio and podcasting fixture, Brittany was a kid growing up in Farmington Hills in Michigan. Growing up in, in Michigan, shaped uh, it shaped the way that I see the world. It shaped my tastes. Today, we're talking to Brittany Luce about hosting, podcasting, and producing stories from Black experience. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. Brittany Luce, welcome to Stateside. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Let's start with a little background. You entered the chat with a show called For Colored Nerds, and it was an act of love, I guess, between you and your pal, Eric Eddings. This was, what, 2014? I feel like what you and Eric were doing kind of predated a much wider moment for Black voices in the mainstream pod space. How did your and Eric's pod life begin? Well, Eric and I, we met at, at Howard University at college in uh, 2005. I was a freshman. He was a sophomore. We became friends. But the thing about Eric is he hates to talk on the phone. Hates it. <laughs> hates it. I don't know how he maintains friendships not talking on the phone, but he hated it. And um, and so as we continued on through adulthood, we would keep our friendship, I think, alive by two things. One, <laughs> sharing articles and things like that. On Gchat and Google Reader all throughout our workday. Um, and then, two, when we would get together, that's when we would talk and just have these marathon sessions. And uh, after one such session at my birthday party, oh my gosh, this is getting very eerie. This is like my birthday's in a couple weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so at my birthday party in like 2013, we ended up sitting at a cigar bar with a bunch of friends at these two club chairs right around a fireplace. And we ended up, we hadn't seen each other in a while and we had a really long chat, probably, I mean, three, four hours. And um, a couple weeks later, right around Thanksgiving, Eric was like, hey, I have this idea. We should start a podcast. I said, no, like twice. And then we <laughs> were in one of our marathon chats. We drank a little more. We had some more whiskey, had some more beer, had some chicken wings, potato skins. And then I was like, all right, let's give it a shot. But it really came from an extension of, not just our conversations as friends, but also the conversations that we knew that we and our friends were having that we didn't see reflected in the podcast space. You and Eric fell into the, you know, the the wider category of podcasts that are two friends just doing doing what they do and hitting record. But the, the next incarnation of the show <laughs> was a Gimlet podcast called The Nod that just mm-hmm. kind of it exploded into a very different and specific kind of storytelling. Could you explain what the nod was and and I guess who it was for? 
Um, yeah, the nod really started out. It, I mean, really, it was just about all of the different facets of black life. We we really enjoyed like the conversations that we were having about black culture, race, news and politics on For Colored Nerds. Um, but we knew that we wanted to sort of put the show in 3D in a way <laughs> um, by bringing in that sort of like reported narrative element. And also at Gimlet, that was like what they were all about. I think I had the only interview show at Gimlet and for a while it was the only interview show that Gimlet had ever produced. Uh, it was a podcast about podcasts called Sampler. Um, and, you know, that that was a great experience, but it just wasn't, it had trouble, I think, finding an audience. And um, and so Gimlet was like, you know, what, what are you interested in working on? I said I was interested in working on a new version of For Colored Nerds that was, you know, something a little bit more complex, something where we could bring in these storytelling skills that we had learned and had begun to hone at Gimlet because Eric started on as a development producer a few months after me. And um, yeah, initially Gimlet actually rejected it. Um, they, and they rejected it a few more times. <laughs> uh, but we had a really great, uh, we had some, a, a really great team of producers and editors who kind of worked with us to bring it forth. We talked about everything on that show from the history of purple drink to the possibility of using MDMA as in like ecstasy and Molly to treat racial trauma. So yeah, I mean, it it was a real blessing to be able to work on that show. That show I can, I can definitively say was the first of its kind, a reported podcast specifically about the lives of black people. I can understand why the elevator pitch was like kind of hard to to bring across. I mean, there were definitely some, you know, some historic stories from like the history of civil rights in there. But stuff like, uh, you know, the, the Hunter Green Thong episode, not safe for not safe for work, everybody. But, you know, fascinating. I can under- <laughs> I can understand why it was difficult to explain what you were trying to do. But. It was such a triumph from an audio nerd perspective of, you know, like relatively few Mm. interviews, but just this massive editorial viewpoint. These shows were also the first time um, as a white person, I felt kind of allowed into the room to listen to the conversation. Mm. Uh, There's no mistaking. There was no mistaking the audience, you know, that this was something you know, it, it was you were exploring your own interests and in what was relevant and what was important. Um, were you very conscious sure. about the wider audience of who who might be listening? Well, I mean, from the time we started for Colored Nerds, <laughs> there were always white people listening to the show. So I anticipated that, and also too, I mean, the Matt and Alex who who started Gimlet and reached out to us initially. Um, to begin a mentorship that then developed into a professional working relationship with Eric and I joining Gimlet down the line. Um, they were white and and they became interested in us from listening to For Colored Nerds. So I always knew that, th- I was always aware of there being a white listening audience. I think the thing is, is that when you put something out on the internet, right, like anybody could find it and be touched by it and feel seen by it um, and be interested in it. And I think that that's wonderful. But when it comes down to it, um, we were making the show to, to capture our interests and to be able to follow them, but also, um, to serve an audience we felt had been underserved. Um, I think that for a while there was this idea, I think is kind of prejudice and bigoted. Um, And I thought that at the time, but I'll say it again now. Uh, But there was this idea that black audiences and black people would not be interested in reported stories. And our thought was like, well, have you considered (laughs) reporting stories about black people? (laughs) 
having black producers and hosts and editors and things like that, um, having black people actually telling the stories through our lens. Have you considered that part? Maybe that was the missing piece. Um, so our, we wanted to serve an audience that was underserved. We wanted to please ourselves. You know, my thought was, is that like, that's like, if any, anybody who wants to listen is welcome to listen. And if you feel, if you enjoyed it, you were entertained, you felt touched, you learned something. I'm so happy about that. But our main goal was to give voice to people who have these really interesting stories and had interesting things to say, but hadn't previously been given the type of like audio narrative, documentary narrative style treatment. The other thing is uh, that, you know, black culture and black pop culture has almost always been a thing. But this this has been a period in which so much of every conversation and every cultural discussion has been influenced by what what black creators are doing. I mean, everybody was going through a ton uh, you know, Donald Trump got elected in 2016. It was a toxic political cycle, and, and black Americans were subject to so much, and Black Lives Matter was blowing up. At the same time, there was this this flowering of political action and written word, art, film, music. It was ta Coates. It was Kehinde Wiley and Amy Sherrill doing presidential portraits, and it was Sorry to Bother You and mm-hmm. Moonlight and Lemonade and Insecure and just and, 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 and. Were there ever points in either show's production when you were thinking about the kind of criticism that this era really needed and really deserved? Well, it's interesting because, you know, um, you just described like the, the, it seems like the time around like the first couple years of the the first Trump presidential campaign and um, and his election and the first couple years of his presidency um, as like a, like kind of a difficult political moment and things were hard for black people. That's like every moment. That's now. That's last week. <laughs> It'll probably be that way in two years. It was that way 50 years ago. It was like that before my parents were born. But uh, I I think that the thing for us was just that, I, I'll say speaking for myself, I think that sometimes because like newsrooms and editorial boards (laughs) and uh, like media staffs are not as diverse as they should be um, by a mile, by 10 miles, by a hundred miles, you end up having people who don't understand the culture, don't understand the references, don't understand the culture that would produce like, you know, whatever piece of art or media they need to be engaging. And then you get a very flat read of the art. And I think to me, in some ways, criticism can be the highest form of love in in that you're saying to someone, I see you, what you're doing affects me and what you're doing matters. Um, And so I think it was important to us that we engage critically with the things that were happening around that time, because that's for us an expression of love. Whereas I think sometimes there can be a sort of like I said, I think that a lot of times black art can get a very flat read um, that isn't worthy of the effort that, that the artist put into it. We need to take a break. More with Brittany Luce in just a minute. Support for the Stateside Podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. 
Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Brittany, I wanted to ask you about stepping into this this new role. Um, Sam created something so specific. I want to be very intentional here. I am not saying, what was it like to fill his shoes? Because I feel like we could have flipped this around the other way if he was, you know, stepping into your project. I don't know if he, you know, if he could mm-hmm. do what you and Eric did. But the thing is, on It's Been a Minute, we heard his Aunt Betty every week. We heard him talking mm-hmm. about being a gay black Texan on the campaign trail. You know, he we mm-hmm. heard so much of him in the show. Was it uh, uh, at all challenging or intimidating to step into a show that he brought so much of himself into? Or did that in a way make it possible for you to to feel free to to make this space your own, too? Well, I mean, I'll say like in between Sam wrapping the show, which I think happened in April or May of this year, and me starting where I began working, I'll say, I began working at NPR September 19th. We began publishing first episode Friday, October 7th with Stacey Abrams, <laughs> three weeks later. Um, but in between when Sam finished and when I started, there were roughly maybe six months of guest hosts who were fantastic. Um, so I had the opportunity to see lots of other people try on the job for a month at a time. Um, and so I, I had the opportunity to see how other people um, sort of inhabited that role. So I think that took some of the pressure off. But additionally, I am really grateful to Sam and the team that built It's Been a Minute because they built a show that so that the audience loved so much and felt so attached to and felt so, and is so dedicated to. Um, and they have remained dedicated to um, despite, you know, you know, Sam exiting the show and having all of these guest hosts and and them getting to know me. Um, people have been incredibly supportive and incredibly engaged. And I think that that's a testament to the work that the team has done before I arrived. But I'll also say that I have been, I started for Color Nerd, started working in podcasting eight years ago last month. Wow. And so I've been myself <laughs> the entire time. <laughs> and my thought was, If NPR hired me, they know that I've been myself this entire time, right? And then also, when I saw the response to the announcement of my taking over, the the response was so incredibly positive. I was very humbled and very grateful. But also, I think that, to me, that's a sign that people respond to me being myself. And so I do appreciate the space that Sam opened up within the NPR universe, right, for a show like this to exist. But also... I have laid quite a lot of groundwork over the last eight years working blue and (laughs) and, um, sharing my opinion and, and, you know, being myself and showing the truth of my relationship, uh, my friendship with, you know, a friend that I've known since I'm 17 and I'm about to be 35. Right. So um, I think that I already have, there's so much of my work is already so closely associated with who I really am that, um, yeah, I, I just... I it actually didn't it didn't even it didn't even cross my mind. We have barely talked at all about your time in Michigan. I know that your folks have some Detroit DNA and that they uh, they they went mm-hmm. to school at Cass Tech. Like you say, they were out of state for a while and then you guys landed in Farmington Hills. Can you give us a slice of mm-hmm. of the wee Britney's life? 
when you were when you were growing up in that particular part of Michigan? I mean, it I I kind of imagine that oh, it's not being super easy. Yeah, I mean, no, I'll say that like so. Yeah, I mean, my own I have no memory. I have very I have very little memory of living in Kentucky. My parents only lived there for maybe a couple of years, long enough just to have my younger sister and me. Uh, my older sister was born in Detroit. My parents, my mom went to Detroit Mercy. My father went to Michigan State. Like with the exception of the few years they spent in Kentucky, my parents have lived in Michigan and in the Detroit area for their entire lives. Yeah. Um, yeah and, and I grew and I came back after I went to Howard to live um, at home with my parents for a few years as an adult. I coached Pompon at Birmingham Groves oh! High School and the JV team came in first in the state that year. So shout out to uh, <laughs> to Groves Pompon. But I, um, I mean, I grew up doing a lot of like, doing a lot of like art and performing art type stuff. So um, going to, I mean, yeah, going to the Fox to go see Sesame Street live, going to church on the West side every single week where, um, you know, my family lived growing up, my auntie lived um, on Evergreen and Finkel. And so that was like where I was <laughs> like a lot of the time at my auntie's house with my cousins, uh, many of whom are all still in the area growing up in, in Michigan shaped, uh, it shaped the way that I see the world. It shaped my tastes. Um, I mentioned in a Detroit Free Press profile that like my father was in a band in high school that was managed by Eddie Kendricks, one of the original Temptations. He grew up a stone's throw from, you know, Motown. And so all of that stuff is really, I don't know, it's, it's, it's all a part of how I grew up. My mother used to uh, be executive director of the Detroit Public Schools uh, Children's Museum or the Detroit Children's Museum, I think it was renamed. And so we spent a lot of time over there. Oh my gosh. I also, I can't help but mention uh, my middle, I had a middle school teacher, Stephen Copenin. He was named Michigan Teacher of the Year, I think, at some point, maybe when I was in high school. He did a journalism unit when I was in the seventh grade, I believe. And we watched an episode of Lou Grant with like Ed Asner, <laughs> my birthday twin. And it, it was like that. I, I, I do not exaggerate when I say like that foundation that I got from Mr. Copenin in middle school. I, I still go back to that when I'm thinking about how to shape a story or how to shape a pitch to this day. Uh, so, I mean, everything about growing up in, in the Detroit area shaped who I am as a person. Um, I have so much pride for home. And I was, when they, <laughs> when I first got the job, I was like, Okay, I was trying to figure out what stations does it's been a minute play on <laughs> in the Detroit area because I wanted I wanted my family to be able to listen. Yeah, um, and so I feel really grateful to that you all. You know, I, I also like I said before we sign on, I was like, I have been trying to get at everybody at NPR. Like, how can I get on an interview <laughs> on a Michigan radio show? So I appreciate you all taking the time. Um, to talk with me today. Um, and also, yeah, like I, I just really, really, to me, this is a very big honor. And it's a very big full circle moment. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Brittany, it's, it's been fantastic hearing you on It's Been a Minute. We, we cannot wait to keep listening. Thank you so much <laughs> yeah. for talking to us. Oh, thank you for having me. This was a real pleasure. Thank you. And that's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm April Bear. You can find full Stateside broadcasts at michiganradio.org and stream them whenever you want to. Today's podcast episode was produced by Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on the show are Mike Blank, Ronia Kabansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. 
Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Music for the show comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.